I'm on the line with Merck Mercuriatis. He's out in Los Angeles. I'm in Mexico. We've been talking a little bit about these dynamics of the aspect of how I'm, how I'm protected, you know, how I'm isolated from COVID and even like, you know, nationalist drama, whatever, uh, in, in, in Mexico, I was explaining how the Jalisco government is the, they're like the leaders in protecting everyone in Mexico from, from COVID and the Mexico city mayor. And those people are like the ones who are lying about the flu and stuff like that. And, um, and then the other big element of the, of, of the Jalisco like economy are, is the, the new Jalisco cartel, which is what they're called. Actually, they are so public about their, their, their business where they're just like, let us run our drugs and, and, and we're all good. And they say it like in the press and I was telling Merck about it. And uh, yeah, we were, you were talking about Amsterdam. Well, you know, Amsterdam is, is not a dissimilar, you know, everything is regulated in Amsterdam. So, you know, depending on what adventure you want to get up to, you know, you're not going to have to put yourself in harm's way to, uh, you know, to experience that adventure. <coughs> Excuse me, that's really ultimately what's so terrible about all these things is the violence that accompanies all of them because, you know, our society tells us that all of these things have to be pushed underground and underground and underground right. and underground to the point where in order to try and experience something that you want to experience, you put yourself in harm's way. So, you know, it's, I never thought that I would hear about a Mexican cartel that uh, uh, is basically effectively saying, listen, just let us get on with our business and we love you. <laughs> yeah, like there's really good vibes about this cartel around. <laughs> like uh, clearly, let, let me, let's be real. Like I'm not the best source to be, you know? So I, like for just from what, the tiny bit that I have been, I've been here for five months and like I get whatever information I get. And just the information that I get is this cartel that has come in they are good to the community and they're trusted. Like it's, it's the, the, the whole community is faced with horrible injustice and these people have res resolved their parts of it in a way that does not hurt anyone. And it sounds like progress. Likes them. Yeah. It sounds like progress. I complete. I, I'm, I'm down with it. Like I don't, I don't do any drugs. Do they I'm like, not, do they like music? <laughs> they're, they're probably they'd probably be better partners than like the local you know distributor partners or, or labels or whatever you know <laughs> they'd probably inc have incredible ideas of like how to build live music and and whatever in the new in the new paradigm whatever we're gonna face <laughs> are, you, are you seeing any any live music where you are i know you said that there the covid was not an issue there is, is, are, oh no, it, it's not an issue in the sense that, uh, well, okay, so I'm super isolated. It's a big issue. Everything is shut down. Right. Um, I'm in the middle of nowhere. So there is no live music here. There's, there's like uh, in this, it's based, it's like imagine an island, but like not physically an island, more like a peninsula. Um, they, they, they do have art and music festivals here, but there hasn't been anything lately. And I mean, there's a couple hundred people here. Like, so someone maybe takes out his guitar and, you know, and, and 30 <laughs> people listen, but like, that's, that's the event. Are they, 
you know. is, is he is he playing any of my songs on his guitar or <laughs> i could i could find out i could be like hey <laughs> do you know how sound to, exchange you know, like <laughs> you know how to play single ladies put a ring on it <laughs> yeah, right right Can you play don't stop believing on that, that guitar Def, i mean uh, definitely definitely that guy knows how to play that one yeah <laughs> have, have, you seen, have you seen this film of uh don't stop believing where there's uh, a man sitting on a park bench and uh, the park is filled with people and he just starts to hum don't stop believing and then he starts to sing it and he starts to sing it a little bit louder and louder and louder and within about two minutes the entire park is singing don't stop wow. believing at the that's top crazy of the, the power of music it's a pretty amazing little film i have to say one of my favorite videos, I got to find it. Uh, so at the peak of like EDM, like maybe 2012, you know, 2011, 2012, there, this video went around of like an after, like a diner, you know, after the, after the show or something. And you just see right. these two guys start drawing at each other. And like someone's like, hide, you know, it's like a, like a, like a hiding video. And, and they get up and they start to, they're like about to go at it. And then some guy in the background just does the Avicii levels. And the guy who's like, like the bigger guy who's got his back to this person who's like about to fuck this other guy up. Like they're drunk and they're cursing at each other. He, start, he just smiles. You see him. He goes, he smiles and turns. And he starts go, and he just like starts nodding his head, and the whole thing like like I don't know if it was staged or what, because it was so beautiful. It was just like, <laughs> and they all start singing, and they all start going like, oh, sometimes, and it was so cool. <laughs> I don't even care if it was staged. I was just like, great music, yes, like <laughs> the beauty of music and ecstasy. Oh my, oh yeah, they were all in another zone. <laughs> have you heard? By the way, have you heard uh, David Guetta's new new rave record? Mm. I don't think so. He's, I saw be, him do some, see, he, I saw him do some, like he got made fun of by DJs. That was all I saw. Uh, I don't he's, know. He's, he's released an incredible EP called okay. him and him and Morton together. And uh, uh, it's, you know, he's, he's not, it's, this is not like him trying to have a hit single. This is just him making club music. And cool. It sounds really fucking good. Like it sounds like, Wow, I wish I could get out of isolation and go to a, you know, go to, go to that rave. Get is the man. I've always, uh, he has such a strange dynamic with the dance music community because there's this gigantic part of the dance music community that only knows the pop producer david Guetta, they have no idea that he spent you know 20 years or more 30 years i think you know as a as a promoter and oh, yeah. and building and a, catal a catalyst for what that sound is absolutely so like the french touch you know that these other guys are you know zadar and 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 motor bass and all that like that, that they get there that's all real but like Guetta gets like excluded from that and get a built foundation thing like it or not you know david getta did it oh no and that's what's exciting about this ep that i'm talking about is like it's cool. just him it's to him taking ownership of largely what he's responsible for and he's by the way he's still at the height of his powers i mean he and georgia two and Fort have a record with sia that is cool one of my favorite new songs but but that's that's like 
you know, David in hit, in hit single territory. This is David in yeah. own, owning, you know, what he did in the 20 years before you ever heard. That's awesome. You know, you got a feeling. <laughs> I was sitting with him. I took like whatever video he shared when he won his first Grammy. I was, uh, this was the year that Phoenix won and it was all the French people together. It was, it was all the, it was, what's his name? Um, French composer, Thomas, uh, super major composer, whatever. I forget it. I'm like blanking, but it was all the French people sitting together. Um, and they won like, boom, boom, boom. It was amazing, amazing moment. And right before Phoenix won, uh, Geta was up and I was like, it was like, it was like, he's sitting to, we were all just sitting together and I'm filming him and his wife. And, uh, it was just a really beautiful moment. And we all hugged right after and like that. And I shared, I gave him the video to post and, uh, Amazing. I, I loved being there with that. Yeah, that was really, that was a cool moment for him. Always great to see people being rewarded for making great music. Definitely. Yeah, it's a, it's a strange thing with the dance music, you know, like the more underground dance music community that doesn't, I don't know, like it's kind of hypocritical the way that they treat him with uh, there's all these other people that they make a big deal out of making sure they get their credit where they're due. I, I guess they don't care about Geta because they don't care about making sure he get his, he gets his. Sorry about that. No worries. Like yeah. they don't make sure that he, they, they, they put their energy into correcting injustice, sure. like making sure that people who don't get paid, who don't get credit, they use their voices to rectify those injustices, but Geta, he got paid elsewhere. So they like kind of don't care but then they, they throw him under the bus for a lot. And, you know, get us responsible for, for so much good and crossover. And, you know, he really did. You know, people, people sometimes hate success and they hate yeah. uh, uh, and they're elitist in their view of things. But the music always talks louder mm -hmm. than words, right? So when you go back and you listen to those records and you recognize who the architect was, and you know who paved the way for all of these other people to be able to do what they want to do then you know you can't deny the credit that david Guetta deserves because he is you know you know a mac daddy without question for sure and you just uh i i really associate Guetta with red one a lot and, and you just did that like the whole you know that moment in time i would say you know that's those guys kind of the main architects of that moment. I think that's right. And, you know, when you look and at- And Red is an amazing, I love him. Great guy. But, you know, if you think about the, 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 you know, everyone looks at Gaga as, um, you know, I guess on in an almost sort of, I would look at her in a very similar to a Bowie-esque sort of way um, in the sense that you know, she's a chameleon. She continually reinvents herself. You know, she probably, you know, used up 20 great ideas in her first 18 months that someone <laughs> like David Bowie would have ridden on for, you know, for 10 years. But I, Oh, that's a funny I, way to think about it, yeah. And, and by the way, I know exactly how great David Bowie was how influential he was and what he means to me. So I'm not saying any of that lightly. I'm, I'm giving her credit that she actually really deserves, you know, like her, her success, what she did is, is what she's done as an artist 
has been incredibly well thought out, incredibly driven. But you know, the combination of Gaga and Red One, you know, you take that one song, Just Dance, that took forever, but then when it finally hit, it changed the sound of radio for the next 10 years. And of course, David Guetta came along at about the same time and helped put fuel on that fire. Um, but certainly what Gaga and Red One did, you know, that combination of, you know, Just Dance, Poker Face, you know, <laughs> get getting on, you know, to Bad Romance, you know, you've got, you know, seven or eight singles there in the first 18 months of, of, of Gaga's life as an artist. And nine of them are spent trying to get, you know, just dance over the line. And then in the next nine months, you get like literally every one of these other amazing songs, you know, through to Judas, um, that is just a remarkable, remarkable, you know, entry point into establishing, establishing yourself as one of the most important new artists in the world. And, and look at, at it, right? You know, Chromatica is out right now. Gaga has been the biggest artist on Spotify and probably across all of streaming for the past 45 days or so doing yeah. unbelievable numbers because, you know, people keep continue to go back to these songs over and over and over again because they're amongst the most influential songs. It's really funny. I, I, I want you to keep talking. I just wanted to to interject for a second. I, it's, I just realized as I'm saying, like, I have so many Gaga episodes lately. I did Daniel Askill the other day who just did right. the new video. I had Dowda Leonard on who, you know, if I don't know if he's credited as executive producer or whatever, but like, you know, he basically, all of his producers made the record basically. Yeah. And he's been involved in Gaga's White Shadow he managed. Oh yeah, he's, he managed day. White Shadow back in the day. Exactly. Yeah. So, but I, so I had him on week of release. It's so funny. And now we're talking about this, like, but yeah, Gaga's super relevant and, and just, you know, to, to, to embolden the contextualize what you said earlier about how Just Dance took so long. I don't think people uh, always understand that four to the floor was not on the radio at the time and Gaga played circuit for a while. She was, she was not a pop artist. She was doing indie alternative, like, radio you know mix shows and stuff like i was seeing her play lot do appearances you know for like for 40 you know for small things opening for people she was just on showcases like i remember secondhand serenade was at the same time as that first that was a, that was a glass notes like first myspace signing at the time right. my dad and i was doing a documentary on that so I would be at these like random, you know, like aspiring pop artist things that were tiny, you know, nothing like this is not like, you know, no one's, it's not a famous, not a big event at, you know, at like Roseland with like one tenth the capacity or something like that. And Gaga <laughs> would be performing at, you know, 6 PM. Right. And she did that for a long or crossed over. Yeah, no, no, without question. And then, you know, but what it did, was it allowed her to put her 10,000 hours in and the right. more she put in her 10,000 hours, the more the idea of what Lady Gaga was became more and more real to her. And just look now at the way that she can elegantly go in and out of, you know, she can go from, you know, Joanne to Star is Born to Chromatica and straight back to- And you have Shallow also, by the way. Shall yeah, I have Shallow and <laughs> Bronson, so I'm delighted yeah. about that too. Um, but you know, this is this is what great artists are about. You know, when when 
you know, when you have the run that Gaga did, you know, you then make a record like Joanne that artistically is at the very, very highest level, but it's not a pop mainstream record, or it's certainly not a record that the pop mainstream was, was, was ready for, but you stick to your guns. And then you come with a song like Shallow that yeah. arguably becomes the biggest song of your career. Which is so wild, by the way. Yeah. Like when that, like, yeah. I was at Venice and I had no idea like what was, I was at Venice Film Festival, like before we really knew what was about to happen. That morning, I remember. It was the one morning. I don't remember why, but like I just, did, I didn't go. Cause I was like, I'll see it next week. You know, when I get back to the States or something and I skipped it and I didn't expect I was just like, oh, it's going to be whatever, like fucking. And then everyone got out and was just like, like I get there, you know, an hour to the island, an hour after everyone watches A Star is Born. And they were like, Star is Born is going to win Best Picture. And I was like, what are you talking? What the What? Like, shut oh. the fuck up. Like, yeah, this is garbage. Like Bradley Cooper and Lady Gaga. And then I saw it and I was bawling throughout. I was just like, lost <laughs> my shit. I, I was literally, I was crying throughout that film. Like, <laughs> but you know, even an artist that had the incredible success that she had with the first two records, you know, would not have been overcome. Like, you know, if, if you listen to Art Pop and you listen to Joanne, those are incredible records, right? But she she just wasn't giving the people what they wanted, right? Um, but the records are incredible records, and I'm sure that in due course they'll be reevaluated. And then Shallow, of course, with the movie and everything else, just becomes, you know, maybe the biggest record that she's ever made. And then Chromatica is fantastic as well. I mean, she's everything that you want a great artist to be because ultimately she only sings to her own tune. Um, you're not going to get her to do something that she doesn't want to do. Um, you know, she's just, you know, to me, she's, she's as good as it gets. So here's something. Okay, as you're saying that, I'm thinking about Van Morrison as a sure. as a, an analog. Vidin Fleece. Like I listen to Vidin Fleece more than I listen to the other Van Morrison records today. Does Joanne have, become? But that's because you have taste. I mean, you know, <laughs> if, if you look at at, at Vidin Fleece, which is almost an ambient record, right? It's yeah. Like no one knows what Vidin Fleece. I'm happy you know it. Yeah. <laughs> it's almost. It's almost. I mean, I'm listening to Vidin Fleece a lot at at the moment because. Vinyl oh, me that's please. so funny. I don't Vinyl know anyone. <laughs> great. Well, Vinyl Me Please did a great, a great um, reissue of it. Right? Oh, I have to check that out. I didn't know that. But they finally got it sounding good because um, it's a beautiful sounding record, but it's, it's an almost, you know, it's an almost ambient record, but the... It's a lush soundscape. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. And it's, you know, it's a deep record. It's not, it's not about a song. It's about the whole, you know, sort of 45 right. minute experience. But I've, I've been listening to, into the music a lot recently, um, which is a great Van record. And, and you know, it, I mean, we all know that, you know, Astro Weeks has the place that it deserves in history. And, you know, Moondance, of course, was a, a commercial juggernaut as were, yeah. you know, so many of the songs on it. But the really, really great yeah. Van stuff is in fact, every Van record, right? Like, yeah. like to me, no guru, no method, no teacher is the best record he ever made, but that can change. You know, I, I can, you know, like right now, you know, I would probably say that Vidin Fleece or Into the Music are the best records that he's ever made. Um, but, you know, it's just such a, 
an incredible history of moving people. Like, you know, if, if you look at, at these great, you know, writers and poet laureates of, of, of history from, you know, particularly Ireland has an incredibly rich history of, of, of literature, you know, from James Joyce, you know, like sure. hundreds of them. But Van Morrison, what Van Morrison can do in, in, in the space of a few minutes. And, and, you know, Van Morrison was, even before Bob Dylan, he was really the first person to sing about religion and, and, and God in the, the, the late 70s in a way that made it cool, right? That, that, didn't, mm -hmm. that didn't make you feel like you were listening to your parents' records or, you know, or gospel music. Um, and, you know, if you listen to Wavelength, if you listen to Into the Music, you know, if you listen to, to you know, there's, there's an album called Common One that has a, a song in it called Summertime in England. That it's just, you know, it's elegiac. It's, 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 mm. it's incredible. But, but Veden Fleece is the shit, right? Like that. that I, is, I think it's a, it's a, it's a state of mind. Yeah. You yeah. just go in and, and you're with him for, you're on a ride. It's ambient. It's beautiful. Right? And he's, yeah. And he's, I mean, I can only imagine that, you know, the creation of that is almost, you know, speaking in tongues. Yeah. Yeah. It's another language in there. Yeah. So what, so with the sort of boundaries off, you know, streaming music, anything can be anywhere. It doesn't require trucks, you know? And when we look at, analog of Gaga and Van Morrison, you know, you're acquiring analogs and you become, you've, I've seen you compare songs to gold, but the difference between your strategy once you acquire gold versus when you, once you acquire the songs is the gold will just sit there, you know, and, and it gets whatever value it gets. The songs though, you're super active on. Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, you know, the, 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 the problem, you know, there are a lot of great, great people, friends of mine, friends of yours that are working, you know, in all the publishing companies and the major companies. Um, and those people are, are not only well-intentioned, but they are passionate and they care about music and they care about the music that they're, they're working on, but they are largely working in a broken system, right? Mm. <clears throat> any company. It was built around has, a different, yeah. different system literally but it's and it's and it's you know it's all been consolidated over the last 30 odd years so you know ultimately when you have 20,000 songs for every person working for you that's not that that doesn't allow you to be active and it doesn't allow you to you know kind of have a sense of of where the magic is in your catalog um, so, you know, we operate on a different basis. We, you know, we only own 13,000 songs, 2000 of them are number one songs, 8,000 of them are top 10 songs. So our catalog is very, very small, but the ratio of success sort of top heavy is extremely high. And we have a lot of people that, you know, take a management approach. I call it song management you know, managing these great songs with responsibility and, 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 and getting more out of them. So, you know, last year we did 12 and a half percent of Warner Chapel's revenues on less than 1% of the songs. 
right? Mm. So, you know, they own 1.5 million songs. We only own 13,000 songs. So, you know, we've, we've got 1% of the amount of the songs that they have, and yet we did 12.5% of the revenue because the model is a completely different model. We're not focused on, you know, creating new IP and, you know, new songs and, and using the passive income of our great catalog to underwrite those new songs. We're focused on getting the most out of that catalog. Um, and because it's opened up, because the the ways to access the catalog has changed. And now yeah, getting and Just Dance or the new single or Joanne is one is all one the same click away. Yeah, and also and, and you know, in the endeavor, you know, if you think about it in your dad's day and when I started, you know, in in in, in our early days, the, the the endeavor was like, how do I get that guy, how do I get Sean right. Glass to pull out $10 from his pocket and spend it on my artist, right? Well, that's not the endeavor anymore, right? The endeavor now- that, You're, that you're no longer even at the sales point at all. Correct, the, the sale doesn't matter. And so that emotional um, uh, act of pulling money out of your pocket, that's already happened, right? They're already paying the 10 bucks a month or the 120 bucks a year for Apple or Spotify. So now it's how do I get them to push play on one of my records, right? And that's a different endeavor altogether because right. on the one hand, it's easier because there is no emotional act of pulling money out of your pocket. But on the other hand, it's much, much harder because they've got access to tens of thousands of things, right? So mm -hmm. why am I going to listen to you know, Mark Ronson and Lady Gaga or Red One and Lady Gaga or Nile Rodgers and Diana Ross instead of listening to Led Zeppelin or the Beatles or, or whatever. So you better have a real plan of how to capture that audience and, and you know, kind of drag them to the water and hopefully have given them enough interesting stuff to make them want to drink. So what do you, and obviously some of this is like, you know, trade secret. I don't want you to, you know, go, go, go into that territory. But how do you explain today's model of, of, I understand the aspect of, you know, the ratio, and that's a great way to look at it. But like song management, what does that look like today? So it's, it, it looks like, you know, you being a person that is totally comfortable and au fait and educated on the songs that they have available to them and coming up with amazing ideas, right? So, and by the way, none of this is rocket science, right? So, you know, when you look at, at a song like Single Ladies Put a Ring on it, right? If we were sitting around in your beautiful palatial home there in Mexico <laughs> and, uh, uh, you know, riffing, it wouldn't take us more than seven minutes for us to come up with the idea of, well, surely single ladies put a ring on it should be in a Zales commercial or in a Jared the Jewelers commercial or in a De Beers commercial or something like that, right? Um, that's not, that, that you don't have to be a rocket scientist. So just the sheer that. nature of the airtime to single ladies, as opposed to having 20,000, you can actually have, a, you know, okay, these are 500 songs yeah. are under my, and then you do get that seven minutes of attention. You get that, you get that attention and it's, it's bandwidth, isn't it? It's, it's, you know, right. if you, you know, you're in Mexico right now, I'm in Los Angeles, 
you know, as much as it's 2020, Wi-Fi bandwidth is not something that's perfect. So, you know, the more people that sign on to this bandwidth, the less, you know, the, our, the quality of our connection will lessen, right? Um, so the so Telcel CEO bought a house nearby and part of his deal was he got us new cell towers. So there's better <laughs> Wi-Fi here. <laughs> that's how we, so, that's where, how we're talking so, right now. So your bandwidth, you know, your bandwidth, <laughs> your bandwidth has, has improved, but you know, for most people, having those 20,000 songs per person. So, you know, look, I, I'll give you an example, right? Um, so we buy the great Al Jackson's catalog, right? So this includes Let's Stay Together by Al Green. It includes Call Me. It includes Still In Love With You, plus several other big hits for Al Green. It includes a bunch of Otis Redding stuff. It includes Bill Withers' first album. It includes... Uh, uh, you know, Green Onions, Booker T and the MGs, which is mm. arguably the most successful instrumental of all time. Wow. Right? Yet 82% of the earnings were on Let's Stay Together. Right. So all those other incredible songs that I've just mentioned were earning hardly anything. Right. Why? Because someone hasn't had the, the, bear, the bandwidth to be able to make sure that um, these songs are being nurtured and loved yes. and being given an opportunity to, you know, be their best selves, right? And that's, and that's why I call it song management because, you know, as an artist manager, and I've been blessed to work with so many great artists, um, I can't play the guitar, I can't sing a song. The only thing that gives me a seat at the table is taking responsibility right? And mm. getting business done. And I've done that well. And that's brought me to, to where I am. And in song management, I just think that these great songs deserve the same responsibility that we bring to artists, right? They do have to be nurtured. They do have to be loved. They do have to be brought back to life because, you know, one of the knock-on effects of being in a home where there are 20,000 songs per person is that you're, you languish, Right? Languishing is, you know, it's, a, it's an elegant word. It sounds quite sophisticated, but you don't want to languish, right? There's sure. a lot of things, in, there's a lot of things you want to do in life. Languishing is not one of them. <laughs> um, and you don't want these songs to languish either. So, you know, our, our job is to bring them back to life and to get them to a point where they are loved and they are nurtured and they are performing at their very, very best. So do you see this as you know, you started three years ago, How, yeah, three years right? Ago. Three years ago, hypnosis, and you started acquiring, acquiring assets. Did, do you see this as a model that you just think it was the better model and you should have done it? You know, if you, if you were 50 years ago, if you were 20 years ago, you would have done it then. Or do you think now is a particularly better time for this kind of model that you speak of? Well, I, I started it for, um, uh, so, you know, my motive, you know, won't surprise you. You know, I started it because I saw an opportunity of course, that yeah. in, the, in the, the growth of streaming would make these songs more valuable in due course. But I also started it, you know, with an ulterior motive. And the ulterior motive was to change where the songwriter sits in the economic equation. Because, you know, it, over the, the sort of 10 years prior to that, more and more of my business 
and became songwriters. Um, and, you know, whether it was Diane Warren or whether it was Justin Tranter or Nile Rogers or, or, or The Dream, you know, what I saw was that these people were not being paid properly. And once you really kind of dig into it, it doesn't matter whether you're making millions of dollars or not, right? You should be making millions of dollars because you're making the world a better place. But are you actually being paid properly, right? Are, are you getting the same value that everyone else in, in, in the economic equation is? And the songwriter has always been the low man or woman on the totem pole because the three biggest song companies in the world don't advocate for songwriters because they're owned by the three biggest recorded music companies in the world. And on the recorded music side of the business, they're taking four fifths of the income. They make an 80% gross margin, a 40% net margin. And in general, they own those recordings in perpetuity. And on the song side of the business, they're getting a fifth of the revenue. They're getting a fifth of the margin. And quite rightly, whether it's through good management and lawyering in the first place or reversions or renegotiations, the songs end up back in the hands of the people that created and co-created them. So, you know, those three big companies, you know, I don't need to name them. Everyone knows who they are. <laughs> sure. I name them all the time anyways. Um, but, you know, those three companies use the leverage that they have of the recorded music company owning the song company to a make sure that the song company can't advocate for songwriters and b to push as much of the improvement as is available into the hands of recorded music where they get the lion's share of the money because the artist is not getting the lion's share of the money the major record company is getting the lion's share of the money and that's all at the expense of the songwriter because you know, when I started in this business, 90% of the artists that you would sign, you know, the post Beatles paradigm, and it didn't matter whether that was, you know, David Bowie or Led Zeppelin or Pink Floyd or Iron Maiden or Metallica or Radiohead or Arcade Fire or whoever it might be, you know, these artists uh, wrote their own songs, they performed their own songs, they had a very good idea of who they were, who they might become, and you know the, what their album cover should look like, what their stage show should look like. And my job and the job of other people like myself was to A, believe in them and B, help them bring it all to fruition, right? Well, today, 90% of the artists that are being signed are really talented people, um, but they don't write their own songs, right? They may co-write the songs, but the vast, you know, the, there hasn't been a billboard top 100 album of the year that didn't have an outside songwriter on it since you know bob dylan's last album of all not the new album which is amazing by the way but his last album of of tempest of all original songs which came out in 2013 2014 so you're not talking about a six or seven year period that we've now lived through where every top 100 album of the year including Coldplay, includes an outside songwriter on it or producers. It's a different world, yeah. It's a different world. And, and, and yeah, so, so in the old days, you know, when, you know, if you were Jimmy Page and Robert Plant, it didn't really matter whether you were being paid fairly and equitably as the songwriter, because whether it was the songwriting income or whether it was the 
album income, the master income, it was all one pool, right? You, right. Were, you were participating in all of it, right? But right now you've got a guy like Ryan Tedder who writes an incredible song like Sucker for the Jonas Brothers that brings them back to life, that allows them to go out and play shows at you know, 750 grand or a million bucks a night. Everyone is showing up wanting to hear Ryan's song, right? That's why they're, they're, they're there, besides the fact that they like these good looking boys. Um, but ultimately, you know, Ryan is not getting his fair and equitable share of, of, of all of that. And I'm not saying that it needs to go to a point where the songwriter is receiving income on live and, and, and other ancillary income streams. I'm just saying that the songwriter needs to be paid properly for their contribution um, to to the recording, which is 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 far far greater. Now, songwriters have only had three raises in eighty six years, and then you still have people like Spotify being dumb enough to try to appeal that. I mean, that, one of the reasons why you can be sure that the appeal will not succeed is that very fact, right? It's so like, you give a little to someone who you know a lot of people listening won't really like without going totally you know into it, but just like to summarize what that conversation so, is right so, now. So yeah. So last year, the copyright board, which is the judicial board in the United States, that passes into law or decides by law how a songwriter will be paid, agreed for the first time ever, uh, you know, in the first time in eighty-six years to give the songwriters a raise. And that raise was that their streaming income, their share of the pie was gonna grow by 44% incrementally over the next four years until the end of 2022. <clears throat> and that uh, has been passed into law and it's, been, it's being paid for right now on, you know, the first increments come through, the second increment is coming through. Um, there'll be another couple of increments that will come through before songwriters fully see that full 44% um, increase in their income. Um, but Spotify and Amazon, not Apple, because Apple are smart enough to recognize that the songwriter is a central, you know, incredibly important component to artists having hit records. Um, uh, you know, Spotify and Apple appealed it. And they did it in a very clumsy fashion because, sorry, Spotify and Amazon appealed it. Um, Apple did not. As I say, Apple recognizes the, 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 the true you know, importance. Always of making partner. me proud to, to be a former Apple Music team member. <laughs> man. Um, so, you know, it's, 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 it's terrible that Spotify had been clumsy enough to appeal it. But the, the, the general thinking is that the appeal will not be successful purely based on the fact that as I say, songwriters have only had three raises in 86 years. So it's not like, you know, hey guys, you know, we've had nine year raises for the last nine years in a row mm -hmm. and this year is just not our turn, right? Yeah. It's like 86 years, three times in 86 years. Yeah. Right? It's criminal and Spotify should be ashamed of themselves because the truth of it is, is that the entire songwriting community and the entire artistic community <laughs> should be in harmony with Spotify and with Apple because streaming has made it possible for us to have the best days of the music business in front of us, um, not behind us. 
uh, because we do, you know, I, I would, you know, five years ago, I would not be able to look in the eyes of a 20 year old and say, you know what, the best days of this business are in front of it. But today I clearly can, but for Spotify to be at odds with songwriters who are the only thing that is in common with everything that they present. Cause you know, let's, let's be clear, right? Spotify, you know, you can argue about whose platform you like better, whether you like Apple better, or whether you like Spotify better in terms of the technology and the kit and the way that they look and they present themselves and everything else and their curation and everything. But if you wake up tomorrow and you're on Spotify and you know, you can't access the Beatles and you can't access Ariana Grande and you can't access Led Zeppelin and you can't access Bebop Deluxe or you know Outkast or you know you know Jay Z whoever your your favorite artist is Nile Rodgers and Chic uh, <laughs> you're not going to get you you know you're going to stop paying your ten bucks right sure. because as great as Spotify is you're not buying Spotify for their technology you're buying it because they are able they to provide you access to something all that access, right? So, you know, it's really silly for Spotify to be at odds with the songwriting community because ultimately the songwriting community is responsible for exactly what it's selling. What do you think about all the movement in podcasts then? Well, to me, you know, look, this whole charade of podcasts in some way, shape or form cannibalizing music is garbage, right? Because at the end of the day, you know, you uh, are going to still spend, you know, I listen to music more than anyone I know, right? I probably listen to music as much as 10 hours a day, right? At times, but I still take a break and watch a movie. I still take a break and watch Sports Center. I still take a break and, you know, watch a news telecast, right? So to me, all the podcast does is help Spotify keep their constituency on the platform longer. So, you know, instead of having to break from Spotify and go to another platform to enjoy the podcast, um, then, you know, now I can access it all in the same space. But it doesn't mean that I'm gonna to listen to music less. It doesn't mean that I'm going to, you know, take my money away from music and put it into, you know, Joe Rogan. I mean, that's, that's all, you know, to me, nonsense. Yeah, I guess the flaw in the argument is I listened to the ratio of how much someone listens to music versus podcasts. Like, give me better podcasts, market them to me more, give me a better, you know, technological tool to listen to them. I, maybe I'll listen to 5% more podcasts, you know, I, I don't know, a little bit more. Maybe I'll listen to one more a week. Like, but I'm not going to like, it's not going to be like, oh my God, podcasts are so easy to listen to now let me change my whole yeah. all my habits you know what i like like no nah, that's not going to happen and let me guess you know i can listen to the clash or bon jovi or nile rogers and chic or i can listen to joe rogan <laughs> you know the the bottom What's line this person i just who i'm going to spend 85 percent of my time listening to those three artists and 15 percent of my time you know, getting into, to, you know, I'm, you know, look, there's no doubt in my mind that Joe Rogan is going to be interesting that, you know, uh, you know, all of these different people that are doing podcasts are going to have something that, 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 you know, will be appealing at, at one point or another, 
but it's still a very tiny part of how much of your life you're going to spend. Um, I mean, I, I would hate to go on a date and find out that the girl that I was dating spent, you know, 85% of her time listening to podcasts because I, <laughs> I changed my life around when people talk to me about well, what not to get like too, I don't want to be like a hater, but yeah, like there's a huge constituency though of like our culture currently that, what podcasts do you listen to? It's become like, oh, how was the weather today? <laughs> and people just, you know, they they just talk. I'm very much, you know, you you and I, you know, we, we don't really know each other, but like I talk about this stuff, just communication, like about the way that people socialize and interact and spend their time and what's essential and what is valuable. And and yeah, I, I believe, you know, podcasts are, um, I, tr I try and make what I'm doing right now, like a salve to what, is out there because most of it's just passive education, passive engagement, passive listening. And I don't want to distract myself. I don't want to disconnect. No, I no. want to learn more and, and get access to things and go deeper. And you know, look, we've just been through a pandemic and we're still in it, but you know, the last 21, 22 weeks, um, you know, it's arguable that the world has never been more vulnerable in either of our two lifetimes, right? I'm, I'm 55, 56 years old. I'm probably, you know, almost double your, your age, as it were. 35. Uh, you know, so not quite, but you know, <laughs> there's still a gap there. We're a couple, sure. gener couple generations apart from each other, but you know, never, never has uh, uh, the world been more vulnerable. Right? Sure, so, I agree. So, so what, is the, what is the research tells you, you know, tell you, you know, the research will tell you that people have gone running for music that has given them comfort. And this has been a big part of our success is that, you know, in, you know, when you look at my shareholder base, which is everything from the Church of England to people like Aviva and AXA and, and Ruffer and, you know, these Investec and Vesco, all these big, you know, it's investors. is public on the London Stock Exchange. So it's a different financial makeup than yeah. most of the other companies we're talking about. It's, you know, what I wanted to do is, as you kind of indicated earlier, was to demonstrate to the financial community that songs were predictable, proven songs were predictable and reliable in their income streams in the same way that golden oil are, right? That's why you invest in golden oil, because they've got a history of being predictable, reliable earnings, right? Well, all great songs have a history of predictable, reliable earnings, whether they've been allowed to languish or whether at the, they're at the full, 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 you know, sort of, you know, breathing well and, and, and functioning, perf functioning perfectly, they are predictable and reliable, right? In, in the way that they behave, because, you know, if you're the, the 14 year old girl that in 1983 fell in love to sweet dreams are made of this, You've you're going to want to listen to it when you're 38. Exactly. And you're, you're, you're going to continue. When you're 64. Yeah. When you're 64, right? Yeah. Um, so, you know. So go, go granular for me on that if, if you can. Like on, on a, even just an example of like how, what that means, predictable and reliable earnings for Sweet Dreams, you know, years so, on. So, you know, you can, you can, you know, obviously a song comes out, it's a massive hit it has two or three years of incredibly fat income um, and then it levels off at a certain place. Right. And, and that, and, and, you know, like, you know, there's a, an anecdote that I tell um, about Mars bonfire. 
right? You know, you know who Mars Bonfire is? No, tell me. <laughs> so, so Mars Bonfire is uh, the guy that wrote. Well, I'll I'll tell you the the whole anecdote in the way that I like to tell okay. it. Okay. Yes, so please. Mars is Mars is twenty one years old in California. It's the nineteen sixties, and you know he's written a few songs, and he wakes up one morning and there's a check in the mailbox, um, and he doesn't have a care in the world. He runs for the nearest Ford dealership, and he buys one of the original Mustangs, right? And a few days later, he's out driving, let's call it the Hollywood Hills. The sun is shining. He's in his new motor. He's completely inspired. He's got his hand on the steering wheel. And as he's driving along, totally inspired, which is where you want a great songwriter to be, these words start to come into his head. And he's going, get your motor running. I'm heading on the highway. I'm looking for adventure and whatever comes my way. And before you know it, Mars is written Born to be Wild, right? And in each of the 50 odd, you know, getting on to 60 years since then, he's never earned less than 300 grand a year from that one song, right? Wow. That's predictable, reliable income, right? That's what these proven songs look like. Um, you know, if, if, and, and, and that is something that is not only investable, but also then when you take into consideration that music is uncorrelated, right? So, you know, when crazy things happen in the marketplace, when Donald Trump does something stupid, the price of gold and oil are affected, right? The price of music is not affected because- When people are in their homes in a pandemic. If you're, if you're living your best life, you're celebrating to a soundtrack of music. Sure. Equally well, if you've experienced the sort if of challenges sad, yeah. <laughs> that we've experienced over the last 20 odd weeks, you're escaping with music, right? And, and the great thing about a five minute long song is that you can actually go, you listen to that song, right? If I put White Man and Hammersmith Palais by The Clash on, I can go from wanting to jump off a building and end it all to feeling like I'm an invincible and can take on the world, right? Mm in one five minute swoop, right? <clears throat> now the Godfather is arguably the greatest movie of all time, but that can't do that for me, right? The Godfather can't take me and go and, you know, from, from wanting to end it all to feeling like I can take on the world in five minutes, regardless of how good Marlon Brando is or how good, you know, my, you know <laughs> Al Pacino is, you know, Robert Duvall, et cetera, you know, Francis Ford Coppola as, 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 a, as a director, I can't look at the Mona Lisa and you know, change my attitude. But I can listen to White Man and Hammersmith Palais, or I can listen to Achilles' Last Stand by Led Zeppelin, or I can listen to Papa Was a Rolling Stone, you know, or Sweet Dreams Are Made of This, or, or Good Times by Sheik, and I can feel like I'm invincible in the space of minutes. So what does like a pie chart look like for that 300K to sell, you know, people don't know this stuff. Like it's not, it's really difficult. I, so maybe let me, let me back up for a second that I think a huge problem with the music industry overall, especially given the last decade where in around 2000, the information was never really shared. It was never public. It was always person to person and it was handed down through interest. Sure. 
and relationships, you know? So it was, and this, this gets into the racism aspect, but, but it doesn't really matter. It's, it, it's, it's, a, it's a universal problem that the music industry, more than anything else, it's very difficult to find out how to, how to, how to do well in the music industry. So when, when you talk about that 300K, um, and, and then additionally, it got worse because a lot of the people who knew things left the industry over 10 years, 15 years when it collapsed. And that knowledge, that information just never got, it went with them. So I think, I mean, I, I don't know how good my pie chart would be of that 300K for Born to be Wild. I don't know how accurate my understanding is. And I am an insider. I really know this shit. And I don't know how accurate I, cause I don't do it the way that, you know, this is not my expertise particularly, but to the average person who is not working at a publishing company or has some kind of insider access, they have no idea how well, that 300K is split up. Um, where it you comes know, in, from. In, in my um, endeavor to be the catalyst for ensuring that the songwriter is paid properly going forward, right? Because that's a big part of why I'm doing this is that I now have the financial wherewithal and the leverage and the strategy to change where the songwriter sits in the economic equation. Right, it's right. going to take a number of years to get there. Um, and uh, it's going to take the cooperation of and, and, and the, the enthusiasm and the dedication of the greatest songwriters in the world. But, you know, eventually, and you'll start to see this very quickly, we will help to create a proper songwriters guild that has real teeth that in the same way that the screenwriters guild goes into every movie company in the world and says, you know, Hey, Mr. Paramount, it's great that you've got, you know, Reese Witherspoon and Denzel Washington, you know, lined up to be in this movie, but you know what, if you don't have my script, there's no movie to make and you're not getting my script until you pay the writers properly. Well, you know, that happens every three years. They scream, they shout, they call each other names. They threaten to bring production to a standstill. But at the end of the day, they figure out a way of paying the writers more money. And as they say in Hollywood, everyone lives happily ever after. Well, that little illustration has never happened in the music business. And as I was saying before- yeah, That gets a ton of press, like the WGA negotiations, like last week, UTA just signed, ICM hasn't signed yet. Yeah. We read about that every day. Like Correct. not, not every, you know, and that, day, but like that, you know, we read, that, there's tons of transparency. That has never happened in the music business because as I was saying before, the three big song companies don't advocate for songwriters because they're owned by the three biggest recorded music companies. I want to change that. So all of, and, and I'm, I'm certainly a catalyst for that change. And I believe it'll take a number of years, but I believe we will see that change. Um, and that it'll be a very significant event for songwriters when we do see it. But, you know, that's all a, a long-winded roundabout way of saying that while Mars Bonfire's predictable, reliable 300 grand sounds like a lot, it's nowhere near what he should be getting, right? Mm -hmm. Because if you take a dollar's worth of income from Apple and Spotify, right, and you chop that up, in rough numbers, that dollar is... 30 cents stays with Spotify and Apple, which I think is entirely fair for what they do. It's how the other 70 cents is split up that's not fair. 
And, you know, at the time of the copyright board ruling, that was 58 and a half cents for recorded music and 11 and a half cents for the song. By the time you get to end of 2022, when the copyright board ruling is uh, what it should be, then, you know, at, at that point, then it'll be 55 cents for recorded music and 15 cents for the song, right? It's still not fair and equitable, and there's still masses, you know, a, a, a massive improvement that is necessary to recognize the songwriter properly. But it's absolutely a step in the right direction. So, you know, what I will say in terms of what the pie chart is on on Mars's predictable, reliable three hundred grand a year. Well, the copyright board ruling will now make it worth about four hundred and forty grand a year. By the time you get to the end of that's from streaming, right? That's from uh, royalty. On yeah, assuming, assuming that yeah. all of his money was from streaming, it yeah. would be four hundred and forty grand, right? Um, but the but the reality is is that it should be at least double that. Okay. Because you know because when you take recorded music and you say that even with the improvements to songwriters, it's still fifty five cents over uh, uh, you know the fifteen cents. Talking about almost four times the amount of money. Now, if that money was all going to the artist, that would be a starting point for a discussion, right? But th that money's not going to the artist. You know, the, the artist is lucky to be getting, you know, fifteen percent, fifteen percent of that fifty-five cents, right? Yeah. The vast majority of it is going to the major label. Mm. Um, so, you know, ultimately, you know, one of the things that I think that the major labels have been very, very good at is creating this perception that Spotify doesn't pay enough, right? Or that Apple doesn't pay oh, enough. Oh, yeah, I mean, the per play counts and all of that controversy, which is totally people it, just mathematically if if it, if anyone explains it to you, like you realize very quickly, oh, this is a distraction. This is stupid. Exactly. Because ultimately what you should really be looking at is how the money is divided up, right? And yeah. like I said, I don't think that there's, there's a certain amount of money. It's split up in certain ways. Yeah, that's and it. Right, and Either right make, now, that's not increase fair the pie. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Or right now, that's the not splits. fair and equitable for the songwriter who, as I say, is delivering. Because you know, look at it, right? Right now, you know, if you have the, you know, uh, if you're running a record company, right? Are you more concerned? with the artist or are you more concerned with having access to Watt or Pooh Bear or Ali Tamposi or Benny Blanco or Stara and these incredible songwriters that are really fueling the songwriters' careers? If I'm running a record company today, I'm much more interested in having you know, lunches and dinners and, and, and barbecues and every, you know, bar mitzvahs and everything under the sun with Andrew Watt and Benny Blanco and Ali Tamposi and Teddy Geiger and Stara and John Ryan and Julian Bonetta than I am, Giorgio Two and Four, than I am with any artist, right? Because they're the ones Yeah, if you look at who, who's more consistently involved in hits, it's, yeah. you know, exactly. it's the people you just listed. Versus an artist who comes around with a hit every few years, maybe, but Astara and Andrew Watt, you know, those are people who are, you know, uh, monthly. I, w I was with Andrew Watt the other day, and every song, and he my played love, me, yeah. every song he played me was a smash. 
every song he played me was a smash. And not only was every song that he played me a smash, but it was a career changing record for every one of the artists that he played them for me wow. with because he's obsessed. And you know, whether it's him or Benny or Starro or Teddy or Pooh Bear or whatever, the, you know, these are people that are at the, the very, very height of their success. You know, look at, at someone like, you know, even Joel Little in, in, in Australia, you know, when you come out of the, the cupboard, you know, with songs like Royals or look at Jack Antonoff, right? Like mm. that's, that's who, um, you know, at the end of the day, that's who I'm, I, I want to be surrounded by. So outside of the streaming revenue, because, you know, just going back to that 300K, like that, so there's a lot of movement to be created around that streaming, around that part of the pie chart. What are the other aspects of it? There, you know, syncs, yeah, radio, so, so, like. So, you yeah. know, you've got, you've got obviously streaming revenue, you've got mechanical revenue when the song is married, you know, obviously half of streaming is mechanical, half of it is performance. Um, so you then got, you know, proper performance royalties, which, you know, beyond the half that is streaming or half of streaming that is classified as performance includes everything from, you know, an artist singing it live at Staples Center right through to an artist singing it live at the local bar. Eventually, the bars and the clubs and, and, and the stores and the gyms will all reopen and they'll all have licenses from BMI and ASCAP and be generating performance income. Um, and then, of course, as you say, there's 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 radio um, as well that contributes to that. And radio is not dead, despite what many people will tell you. Um, and uh, you know, you then have sync, where you know you take the song and you put it in a movie or a TV commercial or a TV program, <coughs> a video game. Um, you know, and, and and you know, you generate big revenues from 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 that. Um, and then, of course, there are new opportunities every day. And whether that opportunity is TikTok mm. or Facebook or, you know, all of these people that have been using music to grow their audience um, but haven't been paying properly, but that are now starting to pay properly. So, you know, over the last you know couple of years, we've seen Peloton settlements and we've seen, you know, uh, Facebook settlements and we're about to see a TikTok settlement and you know, that type of thing, which is, is new sources of income. Um, so, you know, there's never been, you know, in the same way that I would say to someone, there's never been a better time to be in the music business. There's actually never been a better time to be a songwriter because not only do you have all these new revenue sources, but, you know, if you think about the very, very biggest careers in music, right? There is no bigger career in music than the Beatles or Elvis Presley or the Rolling Stones or Elton John, you know, or, or Barry Manilow, you know, these, these, these artists, right? But when you look at the incredible success, Queen, right? When you look at the incredible success that, you know, Stevie Wonder, that these artists have had, Beyonce, right? Up until this moment in time. Did you know that Bohemian Rhapsody was bigger than all those other songs before the movie? Of course. That was because I, I worked on that, and that was the first thing that when I first got the call, and like I, like I was under NDA, and I didn't know what they were asking me about at first. Like my first conversation was, uh, I worked on the marketing, and they brought me in for a movie that involved music, blah blah blah, and they liked my resume with festivals, streaming, and label stuff, and uh, then when someone like called me after and was like, by the way, this is what it's about. And I like went and did, I like stayed up all night and wrote this like report basically on exactly how massive 
like it so, already is. It was so the imagine, biggest before the movie. So imagine Bohemian Rhapsody being the juggernaut that it is, right? Or, or in my catalog, something like Don't Stop Believing. Yeah, Don't Stop Believing is right behind Bohemian Rhapsody. Yeah. So, so when you look at those, right, imagine now that, you know, despite the unbelievable success of those songs, that up until this moment in time, they've never earned a penny out of India. They've never earned a penny oh, yeah. out of Africa. They've never earned a penny out of China. <clears throat> and now, you know, four weeks ago, Apple opens up in 52 new countries, right? A huge number of them in Africa. And I'm looking at the statistics the other day. And of course, I'm expecting that the continent of Africa is going to gravitate towards Let's Stay Together by Al Green or Single Ladies Put a Ring on It by Beyonce or, or, or you know, Umbrella by Rihanna. Um, and, you know, what I don't expect is that suddenly money is going to come flowing through from the continent on Don't Stop Believing, right? And Don't Stop Believing has been getting played nonstop in the Congo, in Senegal, right? In all of these amazing countries that we've never really had an opportunity to experience culturally. And if you take India as an example, in the last 12 months, India has gone from international consumption being 8%. People knew Bollywood, they knew Indian folk music, they knew Indian classical music. They may have heard of our Western artists and stars, but they didn't have ready access, right? Right. Now at the push of a button, they have access to everything. So suddenly the consumption of international music has gone from 8% 12 months ago to 42% today, right? And that That's is, huge you know, yeah. if you're a songwriter right now and you come up, you know, Andrew Watt, like I said, he wrote, you know, he played me a bunch of smashes the other night. These are going to be amongst the very first songs that not only do you see incredible income from the United States, incredible income from Canada, incredible income from the UK, incredible income from, um, you know, Europe. Now you're going to start to see incredible income from Africa, incredible income from China, incredible income from India incredible income from Russia, et cetera, right? Because every day the world is getting bigger, the pie is getting bigger. And even though India and China and Africa will not pay at the same rates that the US and the UK pays at this moment in time, it's money we've never seen before. Right. So it's pretty exciting stuff. That's very exciting. Yeah, so I'm afraid I, I have to wrap Sean, um, thank you so much. Final questions that you want to ask or anything like that, but I'm, I'm happy to take another three or four minutes. But I'm, I'm beyond that. Okay. Jump on this other call. Personally, when when uh, you've spoken of this moment of of this opportunity, that you know capitalizing would allow you to change the industry. What change the in industry? Change the industry on behalf of the songwriter. Oh no, yeah. I'm I'm just I'm being you know I'm I'm not reiterating what, yeah. what you've already said. Yeah. Um, what happened in your life that made you really want that? And when did you decide that so it was the moment? I was spending a lot of time with Diane Warren, who's one of the greatest songwriters, with Justin Tranter, who 
equally well, you know, the dream equally well, Tricky Stewart, Nile Rogers. And I realized that these people were going into the room on a daily basis and they were the difference makers, right? They were the difference between whether an artist was gonna have a smash or whether an artist was, you know, maybe gonna be dropped because they didn't have the smash, right? And yet they were not getting their fair and equitable uh, share of, 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 of the income. And I recognized that it didn't matter who my clients were. It didn't matter whether I was intelligent or had money. The only thing that was gonna change uh, this uh, paradigm was leverage and serious money, billions of dollars, not millions or tens of millions of dollars, right? Billions of dollars. And that was when, and, I, and so, you know, on the one hand, I'm looking at that. On the other hand, I'm looking at streaming. And what's really obvious to me about streaming is that it's going to blow the pie up. And the reason why it's going to blow the pie up is because, in fact, the music business pie has always been very small. Right. So, you know, when we look at the benchmark for extraordinary success in our business being the platinum record, well, in the United States, a platinum record is a million copies in a country that has almost 360 million people in it. Right. So one in 360 people gets you extraordinary success in music business terms. Right. Whereas if you compare that to the movie business, probably doing $300 million at the box office is the same comparable success on the $300 million at the box office. That's about 25 to 30 million people paying to see the movie. We may have had 25 or 30 million people listening to our song, but if we were lucky, a million were actually paying for it. Mm -hmm. right? What streaming has done is it's brought that other 349 out of 350 people, what used to be the passive consumer who never ever spent money on music that, you know, enjoyed music on the radio, yeah. ostensibly for free, on, enjoyed it on watching it on television, colliding with it in a movie or, or whatever, but that would never ever put their hand in their pocket and pull out $10 and pay for it. Well, they're now paying 120 bucks a year for music, quite rightly. Right? And they would rather bite off their arm than uh, uh, not have their Spotify or their Apple. And in truth, music has gone from being a discretionary luxury purchase to being a utility purchase, right? You pay your 10 bucks a month from Spotify. It's like your electricity, right? You, as long as you pay your monthly electricity bill, you know that when you flip the switch, it's going to be there. But you never ever think about is it going to be there? Isn't it going to be there? Right. I just realized I've been away for five months. I realized yesterday I've been away for five months and didn't cancel my Wi-Fi. <laughs> I've, I've been paying five months of internet in my New York apartment. Sitting <laughs> I just realized yesterday. But you know, when you get back, it's going to be there for you, right? It's yeah, I mean, uh, for right? for like two thousand dollars. Yeah. So when I when I when I took these two things, the disparity of what a songwriter is being paid versus the growth that I could see coming via streaming. Mm -hmm. I recognized that there was an opportunity not only to make money, but to use that leverage to change where the songwriter sits in the economic equation. Um, and I took two years and I educated the Church of England and I educated 
you know, the, the, the Investex and the Invescos and the Ruffers and, and the Axas and the Avivas of this world, the Bank of Montreal's, the Royal Bank of Canada's, the JP Morgan's into the concept of songs being an asset class, right? And, and now, you know, three years later, we're a FTSE 250 company with the fastest company to have ever made the FTSE 250. So one of the 250 biggest companies on the stock market. We're the 23 biggest yielders. So there are only 22 companies that are paying a bigger dividend than we are to their shareholders. And that is the power of music. And that's something that is not only good for me and my shareholders, but it's great for every songwriter that's out there because their assets are worth more money now. Blowing up the pie. There's a power now in recognizing songs as an asset class. Um, and you know, it's, it's, uh, I'm, I've been very lucky, right? It's, it's a very, very simple idea as, you know, like what I was saying before, it's not rocket science. It's just very, very logical. And it's all in service of wanting to make the world a better place for songwriters. I dig it and, and good on you. I look Wonderful forward to, to the you, next man. big announcement. Enjoy safe. Uh, the rest of your time in Mexico. And, Thank you. Yeah, it's brief now. Uh, I look forward to seeing you in the flesh. Definitely. We'll do tea proper somewhere soon in the right. new world. Yes. Cheers. Thanks right. again.